Oh man, I see JB in the chat says I actually saw the sun today in Seattle. And it's so sad. Just because you said that, JB, from now on I'm gonna post pictures of how beautifully sunny it is here in Mexico. <laughs> Every day. Just rub it in. Real good. Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of this is Revolution Podcast. Quickly before we start, if you haven't done it already, hit like. Also, we found out that a lot of you that watch the show, even guys that comment in the chat, comment in the comments, haven't subscribed. Hit subscribe. It's a passive gesture. It goes a long way to helping the show grow. It doesn't cost you a dime. Also, hit the notification bell so you're loaded whenever we go live. We say 6 o'clock. Sometimes we mean 6.05. I mean, we, we hope for 6 o'clock. That's why the notification bell is really important. That way you don't wait a little bit and get angry. As always, thank you to all the subscribers on YouTube and Twitch and all the audio-only podcast formats you find us. Also, thanks to all our patrons. Collectively, you are the fuel in the engine that keeps TIR moving along. So if you're enjoying what we do here and want access to the post-show champagne room, which MT and I will be going into tonight because our guest does have a heart out and sadly cannot join us in the champagne room. But if you'd like access to the champagne rooms, past and present, be part of the live virtual audience for the hour and the movie nights. There's only one way. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. It can all be yours. And also, don't forget, if you are listening on the audio-only formats as well, especially Apple Podcasts, as most of you that listen, listen on Apple we also have the ability to subscribe and get access to all of those champagne rooms, past and present as well. It's as easy as hitting that subscribe button and you can enjoy the insanity of the champagne room. And being that it is the holiday season, Tucson is also putting on the screen some of the items we have in the TIR store. We also have, it's not in our... QR code scanning picture thingy. The Anglo Pessimist Pessimism tote bag. And we have a new TIR beanie. The person that is putting these up on the screen, the faceless voice of reason, someone says Pascal's still affiliated with the show. Please stop asking questions. Like is someone not affiliated with the show because you don't see him on air. I'm just gonna say this one last time. Uh, everyone that's been affiliated with the show is still affiliated with the show, but I know people don't want to understand this. Everyone else has lives. And those lives are extremely complicated. And we will leave it at that. Please welcome the faceless voice of reason, M.T. Sloan. Hello, hello. Always good how to be you? here. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You got the uh, Debbie, you, Debbie Gibson uh, denim jacket on. Why is it Debbie Gibson denim jacket? God. <laughs> Can't win with you people. What's wrong with the denim jacket? It's it's mildly chilly. It's a California chili here. And you're saying it's a Debbie Gibson. Why is it a Debbie Gibson? Why am I lost in your eyes? this denim jacket suddenly we're in the mall 
you ready for the show tonight? I am. Um, when our guest, who is a personal friend, he's actually stayed at the Casa de Miles here in Mexico. He's also gotten lost here in beautiful Baja, California. Mm-hmm. Um, he he said, Jason, I'm starting a Substack, And I was like, okay. And he sends me the first article and like, oh, okay. Violent revolutions. All right. You're, you're not fucking around. <laughs> you're going to do it, do it big. <laughs> and, you know, we talk not, not enough, but we do talk. And I was like, you know what? I want you to come on the show and let's talk about this. And I think this is going to be an interesting topic. We've had some interesting topics on the show, which people have been somewhat divisive about in comments sections. I'm sure this is another show where there will be a lot of divisiveness in the comment sections. What do you think, Tucson? Um, I'm here for it. Steve yeah. says some days I'm flying, some days I look like I grab clothes out of a donation bin. Steve, that is every day. <laughs> if you really know me, it's literally every day. Many people watching this show long for an end to the brutality of the economic system we live under called capitalism. We understand the lack of ethical consumption, the exploitation of labor, the discarding of literal human beings under the term surplus. In this economic model that is so much part of our lives that an alternative to this system is akin to science fiction. That's because it's literally so omnipresent that the only way we can even begin to fathom its demise is through revolution. But will that revolution come from a series of political wins a par- and paradigm shifts in the body politic or through some sort of violent revolution? There have been successful revolutions in the past, but how did they end? After you've taken power, what do you do with your enemies? What happens when the violent revolution fails to gain the support of the people? What becomes of the revolutionaries? From our guest's recent essay, you can't have no revolution without a civil war. Quote, I spent a lot of time thinking about the violent implications of my revolutionary politics as a historian of the Soviet Union and someone who teaches the history of revolutionary thought, capitalism and climate change. Violence in various forms pervades the narratives that I relay to students as a compassionate person with, I think, an articulate code of ethics. I am, in theory, a pacifist, yet there is an extent to which the pacifist nonviolent forms of protest we have been bred to embrace have landed us in today's destitute subservience to monopoly capitalism, climate catastrophe, and state-sanctioned police militarism. While we refuse to violence, the state has monopolized it more than ever. I want to be absolutely clear here with what I mean by violence. I define violence broadly as execution, exploitation, imprisonment, hostage-taking, and intentional intimidation. I'm glad that he put that all out there. Such a wide definition captures a plethora of revolutionary movements, but it is also importantly, it also importantly implicates existing capitalism. Something that I believe all comrades accept is that the history of capitalism is quantitatively more violent than any other world system in history. Imperialism, industrial wage slavery, prison industrial complexes, debt peonage, slavery, embargoes, economic blockades, racism, 
prostitution, sexism, and police brutality all qualify as violent acts imposed on people by the ex exigencies of the system. There is nothing revolutionary about capitalism. The Irish famine, Indian famines, indigenous genocide, chattel slavery, CIA-backed coups, opium wars, and the horrendous acts to protect the free market conducted by ExxonMobil in Indonesia and Nestle in China, Brazil, Pakistan, and Ethiopia are just a handful of examples. That is a small excerpt from our guest today, professor and author, researcher, filmmaker, or we know documentarian. That's better. Please welcome Alex Herbert. Father, the most important one. What's that? Father. <gasps> yes. Yes. Hey. Yes. Let's clap it up for dads. Yeah. I'll take um, a bow for that one. Um, Alex, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I know that you have to go to bed because you teach an early class. Um, so let's just get right into it. Um, you say you're a pacifist in the essay. But can you say you're a pacifist and still believe that violence is always going to be a part of any resistance to toppling capitalism? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Um, so that question is sort of at the heart of what I was trying to address in this essay. Um, because as I said in the beginning, you know, I identify myself in everyday life as a pacifist. I've been in uh, you know, I've been in fights when I was younger, but nowadays in my adult life, if I'm confronted with somebody that is acting violent or irrational, my first instinct isn't to engage uh, in violence with them, but to try to take them down from that point of uh, try to de-escalate, if you will. But as I pointed out, the, the, the reality is that my politics, that is revolutionary politics, are uh, inherently violent to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, the, the real question for me, and this is something I sat with for a long time, is questioning whether or not there has been any socialist revolution in history that has not either emerged from violence or, or through its success caused violence. So, you know, mm. some of the examples that, that, I, that I gave in the uh, paper, I've engaging more specifically with uh, Trotsky and Kotsky have this debate about the Paris Commune um, and the role of violence. But, you know, you could even extend that to what are viewed as sort of the more peaceful revolutions, the electoral revolutions like uh, Germany in 1919 or even the election of Salvador Allende in uh, Chile, right? Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that these are, these are uh, uh, ostensibly peaceful revolutions, transitions to power that happen through electoral politics, but their aftermath is probably more violent than an outright, you know, violent seizure of power would be itself. In in the case of Chile, you get the dictator Pinochet, who who uh, was one of the most ruthless dictators of um, the the second half of the 20th century. And in the case of Germany, the 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 victory of 
the Social Democratic Party in 1919 came first at the expense of the radicals in 1918, and then also later on the other side of it, kind of opened the floodgates for national socialism to emerge as as the dominant um, political framework there. And so, you know, everywhere you turn in world history, thinking about where socialist revolution has has happened, um, there has been uh, a lot of violence involved with it. And so it's not just a question of, um, you know, do your political enemies need to be eliminated? But th the question also emerges in, in how do you hold on to power once you have that? Um, uh, how do you impose power is another question. Um, and then, of course, you know, thinking as a socialist, the, the, the heart of socialism, kind of the unspoken uh, aspect of socialism is its inherent claim to morality, right? And, and Marx mm -hmm. doesn't really write anything about morality, but later subsequent people did, with the idea being that as a, a, as a revolutionary doctrine, as a theory that is committed to equality, uh, uh, communalism, right? Um, that, that there is some kind of moral claim to, to a better world. That's the ideal, right? We want to achieve communism. We want to achieve equality for all. And so therefore, um, uh, it's better than this kind of cutthroat, competitive, uh, capitalist alternative. Um, well, well, that's why I wanted to ask you kind of about the, the second question I have here. You know, you, you listed the Russian Revolution. Of course, you're talking about the Paris Commune, and you were kind of kind of at the roots of this, even this conversation, the, the Kratsky and, and Trotsky uh, debates. Um, you listed a lot of uh, early 20th century examples of violent revolution. Um, and you didn't, and you kind of mentioned Pol Pot in Cambodia, but, uh, you know, we have also leftist revolutions in Africa, like Somalia. Um, is there something to Ian Parker's theory of Stalinist realism when it comes to leftist revolutions? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the case of Pol Pot is one of those that, you know, all everybody's anti-socialist, anti-communist uncle brings up at the dinner table uh, as a sort of counter to to um, uh, a pro-socialist agitation. And, and my only kind of re response to that is that Pol Pot, unlike any other um, revolutionary, uh, claimed revolutionary at the time, uh, had a level of ethno-nationalism that is more reminiscent of, of uh, neo-Nazi, of Nazism, really. Uh, so I don't typically include him in the the histories of socialism, because, you know, what we get with Pol Pot is somebody that's claiming the revolutionary doctrine, someone that's claiming to be of, of that, um, uh, of that uh, discipline, I guess, but then in practice actually doing something completely different. Um, Could you say the same about the Horn of Africa, though, and some of their 70s, you know, struggles as well? Those are somewhat ethno-nationalist, wouldn't you say? No. I think you could. And and it gets really sticky when you look at somebody like uh, Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso. Right. Because even he even his claim to uh, national self-determination for the people of Burkina Faso could be viewed as ethno-nationalism. But but if you pay attention to the way that Sankara engaged with the French, for example, the former uh, yeah. colonizing powers at the time, um, 
you know, it wasn't about uh, ethnically eliminating the French from the country. He, he actually uh, worked with them, um, but also in the interest of the people of Burkina Faso. And there was no kind of like de-urbanization um, uh, effort in the part of Thomas Sankara, just as one example. So I think there's something unique about Pol Pot in, in the ethno-nationalist aspect that kind of puts him more in the field of uh, East Asia's own Hitler, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in trying to create a, a ethno-nationalist state in Cambodia. Because in that case, it was very much not about creating an egalitarian society based on communalism. It was more about uh, eliminating the non-Cambodian ethnicities of, of the country uh, and de-urbanizing the country as well. And the belief that the urban, the agricultural sector was uh, the strength of the Cambodian people. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say, though, when when uh, some of these revolutions are brought up, even the Soviet Union, to some extent, uh, is brought up as far as like, well, this is where this is what happens when you use violence, you become reactionary. Yeah. So this is the question that uh, between Trotsky and Kotsky that I really tried to explore in that article though I've, i feel like i didn't do quite as good of a job as i could have which is why it's on substack um, <laughs> <laughs> um but uh but no i mean th this is the question that they're having and they're using historical precedent to try to make the case on the one hand you have trotsky who you know all the listeners all of you know leader of the uh, Revolutionary Military Committee at first and then becomes leader of the Red Army during the Civil War. So he's very much in the forefront of violence that's happening. On the other hand, you have someone like Karl Kautsky, who is the theoretical champion of German Social Democratic Party, German Socialism, who's very pro-electoral um, politics and very much against violence. And, and they're having this conversation with each other in uh, 1918 and 1919 through the various publications that socialists have in Europe. Um, Kotsky is looking at the taking of hostages and the execution that the Bolsheviks are doing against counter-revolutionaries, against anarchists even, uh, against industrial saboteurs, against members, uh, family members of the bourgeoisie. And he's saying that, you know, the, the real argument that Kotsky has here is that these acts of violence are going to discredit socialism internationally forever. And so this gets actually to your question about Stalinist realism, too, um, because, you know, part of that question, part of that argument is that Stalin, as the dictator, as somebody who committed violence, kind of destroyed the reputation of, of communism internationally. Mm -hmm. But Kotsky is saying that, you know, it's the it's the use of violence that's going to destroy the credibility of socialism everywhere throughout the world. It's going, going to ruin its reputation. And, you know, to a certain extent, what that does is that arms uh, the West. It, it arms kind of bourgeois intellectuals, too, who then take that piece from Kotsky, the reality of it, and then they'll weaponize it in their kind of theorization of totalitarianism. On the other hand, you have someone like Trotsky, who is very much in in the throes of things right he's he's the head of the red army 
he's making decisions on how to deal with counter-revolutionaries. And his argument is that, you know, if you are against violence, if you are against hostage taking, then you are against revolution itself. Because, uh, and this is uh, uh, an argument that even a contemporary historian, Arno Mayer, uh, made in his book on, uh, it's called The Furies, that all revolutions create both the the kind of thesis and the antithesis, right? The antithesis is always the counter-revolution. So there's always a counter-revolution. There's always people that don't want the revolution to happen. It's mm -hmm. against their material interests. It's against their ideological interests. Uh, and, you know, maybe they have a personal feud with someone like Trotsky or something like that. So they just don't want it to happen for whatever reason. Uh, and Trotsky's argument is, if you understand that, then you understand that there is a level of violence that has to be exercised um, sort of at every stage um, in order, A, to, to actually have the revolutionary moment for it to happen, B, to establish um, order. You have to create something like the Cheka, like the Soviet Union did, some kind of um, uh, uh, police force that can, that can enforce the new order. And then C, you have to have a means of defending the order um because you know trotsky will point to the the civil war as an example so what it comes down to is there's a real moral ethical question about violence which is sort of where i'm kind of tossing the ball to to you know everybody in the chat and even you guys is um uh what do we do about that how do we acknowledge the fact that to get what we want is an inherently violent uh, uh, project, even if it's not violent in the act of revolution, it, uh, there's always the counter revolution. It's something that always happens. Even if, you know, um, tomorrow we had some politician win the presidency that identifies as socialist, there's always going to be resistance to that. If not, you know, execution which happened before. Coos. I mean, it brings up a very important, well, actually, uh, there's a super chat. Did Tucson, did you want to get to the super chat? We do have a super chat. So the, the chat is throwing the ball back at you. Back at you. <laughs> we have a question from JB. Once a socialist revolution becomes about preservation of national sov sovereignty, is it a revolution anymore since it's now about establishing a nation state in the tradition of liberalism slash capitalism? Mm. I.e. socialism in one country. Is that what you mean, JB? Like the Soviet project? One really large country. <laughs> I would say that, you know, the, the common narrative is that it, as, as you said, Jason, that it's Stalin's socialism in one country that articulates this idea that you don't have to have world revolution. You don't have to have international revolution in order to build socialism. Um, but I think it's really China that uh, that um, enables that more than the Soviet Union, because mm. when the Soviet Union is constructed in, in uh, 1920, it creates also the, the third international um, um, in which, you know, it's supposed to be Moscow is supposed to be the, the intellectual and the financial and the political hub of international revolution. And the third international um, is supposed to provide financial support and intellectual guidance for communists around the world. Um, 
and it does that. It does that for a while. I did. I in the in my Substack, there's also an article on American communism where I talk about this. And and one of the problems that Zinoviev, who is the the first head of the international, one of the funny feuds that he has is about American communists. And he says that you know, the problem with American communists is that they're they're always fighting each other. There's so many factions within. American communism, they're so individualistic that they can't come together. So he actually imposes a rule on the American communists and says, well, if you can't come together and form a single communist party, they were going to kick you out of the international altogether. Um, but so Moscow does try to become this this sort of international hub of, of communist agitation worldwide. But during the Second World War, Stalin dissolves the third international mm -hmm. and he does so because he's allying himself with roosevelt and with churchill right he, he's forming he's turning instead to um the anti-fascist coalition right the popular front idea uh and so the the need for the international kind of falls out and the war the, the war ends right the soviet union gets more or less in control of Eastern Europe, sets up its own borders in Germany um, and, and exercises its influence in, in, in on the eastern side of what's called the Iron Curtain. Um, and it sort of stays like that for a while until 1956 with the, the Hungarian uprisings, right? And, and also Khrushchev's denouncing of, of the crimes of Stalinism. And so all of these communist parties in France, in Italy, um, they all turn away from the Soviet Union as as guidance at this point. But in 1949, you have the the revolution in China, uh, which is just as I would say inspirational for the formerly colonized world as 1917 was for the rest of the world, um, for for uh, you know like India and and Western Europe. Uh, so then you get revolutions that break out in in Korea and Vietnam, Cambodia later, et cetera, all heavily influenced by Maoism, Maoist tactics. Uh, and one component of Maoism is the commitment to the national revolution. And I think that, uh, you know, Mao recognizes as much as uh, Kim Il-sung does or as Ho Chi Minh does that that our revolution is going to be different than it's going to be different than Russia. It's going to be different than, you know, uh, anywhere else you go, because we have our own national particular, nationally particular culture uh, and traditions and history and practices. And we know our land better than anyone else. Uh, and so I don't think that um, uh, I, I don't think that it's incompatible with the nation at all. It, it becomes very much compatible with it insofar as the nation is kind of the the embodiment of just, you know, the people that it's supposed to represent. Um, also, you, you know, we didn't get a chance to, I, I forgot to bring up this name when it comes to revolutionaries and, and violent revolution in Peru, we have a shining path um, with uh, what is his name? Oh God, it's uh, Presidente Gonzalo. Um, a lot of, young aspiring communist socialists that actually listen to the lyrics of rage against the machine songs i don't know if you remember those those videos where they actually would have like shining path in the videos and stuff like that um how do you view 
their use of, of violence. Um, again, that's a, I don't know. It's, I think that violence in the name of revolution is always justified, but then what the question becomes is what is, where's the revolution begin and end? Um, and, and, you know, not to go back to the Soviet Union, but I guess it's where my strength is, you know, the question of, of where, where does the revolution begin or end? Does it end in 1928 with, with Stalinism or does it end in, you know, the, the, the end of the Second World War, this kind of culmination of industrial capacity and buildup um, in which, you know, there, there's violence that exists throughout the whole period. Or even, you know, some people consider uh, Stalinism to be a revolution in and of itself after 1928. And so then you have the purges and, and all that uh, in the name of, again, in the name of revolution. Uh, Mao is another example. There's there's the initial civil war. There's the victory in the civil war. But then there's other acts of violence that are that are committed after the seizure of power already. So when does the, the revolution begin or end? And I think that answering that question will go a long way to, to considering, you know, someone like Gonzalo and their use of um, uh, violence. Tussan, did you want to add anything? Um, <coughs> no. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> if, if I must say something, I will say, I forgot you were the guy with those shelves. Yeah. Those shelves are still shitty ass shelves that I built myself, but um, oh man, that's cool. I'm jealous. I have no shelves. Um, the one question that uh, that can't, comes up too is um, the difference between a revolutionary and a terrorist, right? And that's I, I did want to ask that, and you just want to jump ahead, but I, I get what you're doing. <laughs> I get you. You know that's that's why I don't show the guests the questions because they jump ahead and mess with the flow. But, you know, I, I did want to ask the question, uh, what's the difference between, the, you know, we have these two terms and right now we're seeing them play out in real time. And I think there's a few things that there's a reason why. Alex, if, I, if you were. To... <laughs> that, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the way we consume media and our understanding of these two terminologies. But when we hear the term terrorist, even domestic terrorist, any kind of terrorist, right, we think of a certain act. But yeah. why do we look at, let's say, Timothy McVeigh as a terrorist or January 6ers as terrorists? And we look at Huey Newton, Black Panthers, AIM as revolutionaries. Both people are fighting what they think is a corrupt government. Both people are acting in what they think is self-defense. What, in your opinion defines a terrorist or a revolutionary um uh i don't i think that there's a lot of uh, of of elements that are involved here i will say that initially the response would be there is no difference um mm. uh mm. the you know the difference is is socially constructed right it's how it's how we as a political body as a society or as the un decide to determine or to define terrorism um and and terrorism is an act against 
the bourgeois state to act against order. Um, but, you know, I would kind of flip the, the comparison because you said Timothy McVeigh. And, you know, my fir first thinking about somebody like Timothy McVeigh, you know, you think that it's just kind of this rogue individual. But in fact, his, his act was pretty political, um, uh, very politically motivated in frustration with the federal government. And so I my mind was trying to think of like, OK, well, who would we consider to be terrorists that aren't political? And I thought of the Columbine kids, for example. Um, you know, we don't typically call them terrorists, although what they did was very terroristic. Not, terror, right? yeah. um, not, not as not on the same political level as McVeigh or as the ELF or, or any of those other um, uh, peoples that we consider terrorists. So I guess I would say, you know, and I'm curious to what your listeners think, too, is um, but I, I guess I would say that there is no difference the the difference is in how we define terrorism oh here's here's a good example you said the columbine kids well, uh what about uh the branch davidians who become deemed um terrorists in my opinion more so because we've created the atf and they were going to be a pr stunt and it just kind of backfired on the atf with bad intel again the united states government is really known for having mediocre intel that being said they had what was it like a million rounds of ammunition and this was like the big oh no they have the stockpile all these weapons they have 50 cows shells they're gonna you know they're gonna do something bad yeah and uh we saw what happened with that with ultimately i think it took like six marines to get position on the compound and you know they had so many shots at Koresh at one point in time to just take him out and they didn't. And ultimately the branch Davidians, you know, sadly, you know, burned themselves alive, but, um, they were deemed a threat to the state, but ultimately they were really kind of only a threat to themselves. Um, like a lot of religious organizations become only a threat to themselves. Um, what, and I'm asking this question to the audience too, in Tucson, I'd love to get your two cents on this. Mm -hmm. Um, you made a good point in the article by talking about how the Black Panthers um, formed as a self-defense organization, as a community organization, right? There's a difference between them and the weathermen, let's say, mm -hmm. um, especially in the way they understood, you know, trying to win people over. Um, is there a point where we prematurely see dramatic violence as the only way to get power's attention um if you feel so suppressed by state power i.e um i don't want to compare the u.s struggle to hamas because i think it's an extremely different <laughs> situation of circumstances but when we see these things happen you know if we think about violent revolution in the u.s context what is really the best result we can hope for? Is it just perpetual combat against a military superpower? No? Well, quickly, we have a super chat. <laughs> From Ken. Ken says, move. 
was considered a terrorist organization. They didn't even have bullets in, in most of those uh, rifles. Yeah, but I think that using uh, pointing out that MOVE was considered a terrorist organization goes a long way in showing that it really depends on how it's defined politically, right? Uh, um, I will say that to answer Jason's question, I do think that within the left, broadly conceived, whether it's the anarchists or communists or socialist left, there is a kind of a fetishization of violence. Um, and that's why the left is, I mean, and this isn't just concerning violence, but it's kind of concerning every, every aspect of leftist politics. We're compelled to go back into our revolutionary predecessors and bring them back out from the past to see if they have any guidance um, moving forward in our hypothetical long, long wished for revolution. Um, and uh, and a lot of that, and we, and what we see when we do that, right? When we go back and we bring up somebody like Trotsky or Kotsky or Che Guevara or Mao, mm. is mm. we see the violence there, right? There, there's no escaping it. And so that's something that what I'm saying is, as is as revolutionaries, it's not just about fetishizing the violence and saying, okay, well, I accept that there is violence in revolution. It also, to a certain extent, is wrestling with the fact that when revolution happens, that there may be people that uh, disappear that will make you very upset. I don't really want to be uh, very explicit with what I'm trying to say here, um, but... <laughs> But you know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 I'm seeing it really vividly right now with what's going on in um, in Israel, right? That uh, there are people that are that are pro-Palestine, but that are that are Jewish themselves, mm -hmm. but they're revolted by you know the death of um, uh, Israelis. Mm -hmm. And you know, I guess what I'm saying here is, what did you expect? Mm. You know. What did you expect revolution to look like? Did you did you really expect it to be, you know, a, a peaceful transition of territory on the path on the on the on the part of Israel? Um, and if so, you know, even me just saying it right now, I hope comes off as foolish, right? Because it is foolish. We know that, you know, power doesn't concede land. And as uh, uh, I believe it's uh, Kwame Tur said that land is power, right? A people without a land is a powerless people. Mm -hmm. um, the Kurds. Yeah. So there, I saw that there was a super question, but I kind of talked over it. Is there a way to bring it back um, up? No, it's okay. That was just a regular comment. Okay. Um, saying that uh, Robespierre was against war with Austria. I do, I do talk about Robespierre in that yeah. article. Um, I, the, the French Revolution in many ways, not, well, the French Revolution is the first instance in which I think that the Enlightenment ideas about this kind of, con this tension between uh, altruistic revolution and violence, the French Revolution is the first time that it's put into practice, right? That, that those, that paradox really becomes uh vivid um for the revolutionaries because again they they have this lofty idea 
We're going to create this new egalitarian society. Uh, it's going to be super democratic. And then they do it and they realize that it's a lot harder to to form that system than they believe, not just because, you know, the people don't aren't really that clear with what they're trying to do, but also because there's active revolution, uh, counter revolution happening within France, within Paris, and then within Europe itself against the revolutionaries. And so Robespierre has to work out um, this this uh, uh, a theory of, of violence. And I saw that one of the um, one of the chat uh, people's quoted Robespierre, this this famous quote that he has on um, virtue, uh, which is kind of taken directly from um, uh, Rousseau, the Enlightenment thinker, uh, who says that, you know, everybody knows Rousseau as the social contract guy, right? The guy that that um, is all about the general will and the social contract. And there is a passage in Rousseau where he says, sometimes the general will, that social contract needs to be enforced um, against the will of people who don't want to conform to it. And so that sets that stage up that, you know, if you want this truly egalitarian society, there's always going to be people that are unhappy with it. Mm. Um, would you call January 6th a revolutionary act? Didn't they think they were protecting democracy in the idea of an overturned uh, election? I would, actually. Um, and that that's an important thing that I think, again, leftists have to wrestle with is the fact that, you know, revolutions don't always look like how you want them to. Yeah, it's mm. not it's not always Lenin seizing power in Smolny Institute. Sometimes it is Adolf Hitler setting fire to the Reichstag. Right. Uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, to make that comparison, I think I do think that January 6th had the potential of being a revolutionary rather frightening moment. <laughs> but but the problem is, and I think what we learned is that. There, there is actually a lot of value in theory, right? So mm -hmm. we leftists are, are so kind of soaked in theory that I would think that if the, if the left did a similar thing, somebody would know how to act to move to kind of consolidate that. But instead on the right, all you got was like some guy in devil horns taking the shit on Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> like, you know, you got the most I mean, we talked about this at the house, right? Remember we had this conversation at the house when we were talking about Cop City and you made, I think, the most awesome point ever. Do you remember that? What was the point that I made? Look at you. You're so you're so fucking profound. You don't even remember when you're. He profound. has so many points. You got so many fucking points. You just you dropped a bomb <laughs> in the living room of fucking awesomeness that I was like, I'm gonna remember this shit forever and act like I said it. What was? I'm sure <laughs> I remember it. I just. We, yeah. You were talking about someone that was speaking about stopping cop city we need to protest stop cop city we need to oh, rally yeah. around stopping cop city and you made a point you said well there was already a referendum right. it was voted on and you're not gonna stop it but we need to talk about organizing how do we want to deal with it yeah there's a certain um uh leftist influencer that came through my town to uh raise money and to organize affinity groups to go to Atlanta for cop city. I don't want to drop any names, but, um, and I, you know, I thought that the presentation was great and they did an awesome job and, and, and 
outlining the the issues with cop city uh how it's a threat to the environment yeah etc and um but the 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 end result the sort of summation of this presentation was you all in providence need to pool your money together take some buses down to atlanta and help us protest cop city which i thought was sort of the the saddest most dead end conclusion that you could make because at that point cop city is a foregone conclusion it's going to be built right mm -hmm. um there's no sense in tying yourself to a tree they they practiced that in the 90s the elf used to do that stuff True. All, all that happened was a guy comes with the clippers, clips the the handcuffs, and then cuts the tree down. It doesn't matter. It's going up no matter what. There's too much investment. There's too much capital involved in it, I think, in order for it to... Or they'll wait you out. Yes. They'll wait, wait you out. Yes, absolutely. And are seeing that uh, uh, in, in other circumstances. And so my, my, my thing was, you know, I think a better conclusion of that would have been if Cop City is the is just the beginning of these kind of police uh, installments across the country, then you need to start thinking about how to mobilize against them in the future, right? You need to start looking ahead at what to do after the first mm -hmm. one is built, um, uh, uh, so that those referendums don't pass in the future. I mean, we were also having a funny conversation about how like this this ain't to stop you. You know leftists like this <laughs> and and we're seeing that right now with the protests uh of what's going on in in uh israel and palestine as some of them are you know get a little heated um nobody's armed right yeah cops aren't dying it's it's very different it's very very different I, well, I mean, the looking at uh, the the state of the military right now and its its real, I guess, build up and investment that it's getting is kind of proof to a certain extent of what I'm saying. Insofar as like the 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 state that exists right now, the United States is a bourgeois state. It is the product of a bourgeois revolution that happened only. Was it 300 years ago? 300 and change. Um, that you know is now increasingly under threat. Whichever way we want to look at it, I know that we all kind of live in a in a bubble. But mm -hmm. um, th but there is evidence that younger generations are turning more towards anti-capitalist alternatives. And I'm careful when I say anti-capitalist because that doesn't necessarily mean socialism. Um, but you. still questioning capitalism itself. Are they questioning capitalism or are they questioning consumerism in mass? Yeah, I don't think I think that a lot of uh, my students don't fully understand the difference. Um, you know, they 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 assume that consumerism and housing crisis and climate change and all these disasters that that they're confronted with um, are broadly conceived capitalism, but they can't kind of fit it all together yet. Um, that's kind of my job. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the emergence of the, the police state, the the not the emergence, but I guess the strengthening of the police state is evidence that there, again, is violence in even holding down the revolution. Right. Let's consider the United States a revolutionary regime. 
um, as it exists right now. It is a bourgeois revolutionary regime. Mm-hmm. And so its police force is an arm of that maintenance. It's the equivalent of um, the the military revolutionary committee, the Red Army. The difference is that, you know, the military revolutionary committee, Red Army, was for the proletariat, whereas the United States military is for, you know, the wealthy. Um, but they're doing the same thing. I want to ask you another question that I think gets somewhat overlooked. I mean, you're talking about in your essay, I think you you really hit on this question or these kind of conversations between intellectuals. And I think this is a question that's important. You know, somebody brought up Ireland and I can't remember if I was talking to Bajlan recently about this show or was it Varn? I was talking to some, I think it was Bajlan, Gene Bajlan. And um, he brought up Ireland. And, you know, we can even talk about the U.S., especially in the in the early to mid 70s after you see kind of the end of a lot of the panther parties a lot of people going to prison or drug addictions or or whatever it may be um this guy's the <laughs> yeah I'm number you, gotta, one. you know what i'll get you a shirt i'll get you a shirt for christmas <laughs> or a tote bag which one would you like the shirt or the tote bag you know what but mm-hmm. i'm also a anti-Afro pessimist too. <laughs> that makes me super Anglo pessimist. That makes me super Anglo Um, but but what happens when you know? Let, let's say part of your violent revolution is going to be robbing banks because you have to fund the, the the revolution, right? And in Ireland's case, they were getting a lot of funding from. You know, Irish people from the states, when that dries up because of their uh, bombing of of civilian hubs, they know criminal activity. Well, <laughs> you get a fair share of, of criminal activity from from cats like this. You get the same thing with um, the splinter parties post the Panthers. You know, cats robbing banks, and because it, you know, hey, f it. F capitalism, right? I get it. Um, but what then happens when your revolution that you foresaw doesn't work out? What is then left of the violent revolutionaries? When the revolution doesn't work out, then is essentially that's the victory of the counter-revolution, right? Mm-hmm. And, and those revolutionaries are historically executed, not even in prison, just straight up executed. You can't have them running around anymore. Um, that's kind of a, 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 a continuous process that you see with the French Revolution, right? There's a passage of from. Well, well then how do you explain? I mean, like, seriously, like, how do you explain, again, the U.S. context? You know, some people get locked up, some people get exiled. But they're still allowed to exist. So, if if I'm understanding you correctly, um, how do you explain the U.S. not executing Mm -hmm. revolutionaries? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I don't think that... Not executing them means we don't want to create martyrs. Right. 
I think that there's a difference between there's a thin line between like literal death and then political cultural death. Right. Okay. So, so think of somebody like Julian Assange, for example. Mm. Um, you know, I actually had this debate with somebody recently who uh, herself is uh, uh, Ukrainian and you know, is very anti-Putin. And one of the things that she said is, well, at least in the United States, we don't execute journalists and yada, yada. And I said, that's true. The, I, we usually do not have agents execute journalists. It's not a normal practice in the U.S., but we do blacklist journalists, right? Mm -hmm. We do have, there are certain journals, journalists, capitalists, who have the power to effectively end somebody's career uh, as a journalist. And we saw that a lot with Donald Trump, right? And, Oof, yeah. Um, uh, the, 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 the power that the state has to silence people. Um, Julian Assange is a good example too, right? He's not like a revolutionary. All he did was release some papers, but... But uh, we see the way that the United States, um, you know, really kind of aggressively wants their hands on him. Um, or so just as a as an example. So I don't think that like when you're comparing, you know, the, the relative freedom of a place like Russia and the United States and saying that, oh, because Russia executes journalists, which like even the some of the evidence for that is kind of specious. I'm not saying that they. That they don't they definitely do go after dissidents but i wouldn't necessarily compare it to the u.s and and then declare the u.s to be any more innocent in the way that it goes after um its own dissidents and it, you know i in a during the red scare for example there's a whole bunch of laws that are passed in the u.s such as the smith act that make it illegal for uh, a communist or or uh, a radical to advocate violent overthrow of the government. Um, and so now, and, and this is, a, to a certain extent, one of the aspects that made Huey Newton and the Panthers kind of genius was because they said, well, if we say it's self-defense, then we're not advocating violent overthrow of the state. We're advocating for self-defense. Um, and so I think that that's where, that's where a lot of it goes now, um, is in the self-defense direction. Um, Tucson, you want to add something as we're closing in on the hour? Pleasure having you, as always. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I was interested in the uh, anti-capitalism talk <laughs> because uh, you say clearly that capitalism is not revolutionary, but I think that would lead some people to consider anti-capitalism to be revolutionary, um, but it's so easily co-opted by capitalism. I think it's easy to get led astray there. Yeah, actually, you bring up a good point. There's, there's a. I do say that you know, capitalism in the in the article. I do say capitalism is not revolutionary. Uh, short sentence, just a statement. But you know. Uh, it's not revolutionary because it's the dominant paradigm right now. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean that it ever was revolutionary? Uh, uh, I don't, I don't think so. Um, but is it, is it just revolutionary to be against the dominant paradigm? I guess is the question that I'm. Steve Paxson would like to have a word with you. Yeah. Over a pint in a soccer game. 
Let's do it. <laughs> Debate right now. Alex Herbert, Steve Paxton, two guys that'll probably agree. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Sunday. The Anglo pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like, you know, I, I, you know, I, because this is part of my job to think constantly, I do sit around and I think about these questions and, and the one that I want listeners and people to get away from this is, is to first challenge that fetishization of violence that leftists have. We all imagine, I don't care who you are, we all imagine this kind of Leninist or Maoist revolutionary moment, right? The overthrow. We want to eat the rich, right? That's what everyone says. Execute the rich, eat the rich. We all, we all imagine this violence as, as a part of the future that we want. But I want you to like sit and think about and wrestle with the moral implications of of that revolutionary uh, uh, program. And I'm not saying that you're going to come out of it saying oh, violence is bad. We shouldn't have violent revolution. But I'm saying that there are certain questions within left organizing uh, and left advocacy that are hard to 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 handle and to deal with and to come up with defenses for, right? And and ultimately, whether you're debating your shitty relative around the holiday table or or at the helm of a new proletariat army, you are going to have to articulate a defense of violence at some point. Mm. You, discipline, I think, is is the that's the word. That's the word me and Gene kept saying back and forth when we we're having this discussion. It was like you, you need insane amounts of discipline when you use violence. It's funny that you say that because I have an article dropping tomorrow on Substack on revolutionary violence. And, you know, it's again, one of those things that I think, uh, not violent, revolutionary discipline. And it's one of those things, again, that I think changes over time, uh, changes in time and in context, but it's unanimous across all revolutionaries that discipline is key. And so one of the questions that I have in this article coming out tomorrow morning is what does discipline look like today? Um, and what, what got me really thinking about this question was uh, last New Year's, I, I quit drinking. Uh, and I, yeah. Yeah, congratulations. And I, and I don't, and, I, and I'm not saying that uh, sobriety is the only form of revolutionary discipline, but I do say that there is a level of mental clarity that if you are incapable of having that mental clarity and drinking responsibly, then you need to have the discipline to be able to step back from it and say, this is actually counterproductive. Um, that's one aspect of it. There's other aspects of, of discipline. I think uh, presentation uh, is one of them. I, I think that, you know, as much as somebody like Joe Biden or Kamala Harris are supposed to embody the American bourgeois uh, uh ideal the communist a, a disciplined communist also has to exude confidence and exactly. and be and try to be that ideal as well fashion fashion matters to people Tucson? presentation Tucson, do you have anything to add to that i mean i like your outfit i think um <laughs> <laughs> Feel like you put some thought into it. It says, uh, I, I'm a professor. 
This is just a this is just a big orange sweater I got. I call this my pumpkin sweater. It matches your drink. I, I wore this on Halloween and my students were like, what are you supposed to be? And I was like, come on, guys, obviously a pumpkin. <laughs> it matches your drink. I thought you did it on purpose. I did not, but now I see it. Thank you. There you go. Um, so, yeah, you can keep an eye out for, for that article dropping. Um, but, like, Again, it's Substack, so I kind of consider these articles to be uh, uh, opportunities for discourse, right? I, I want people to disagree with me. I want to have conversations. I want you to leave comments and be like, wow, you didn't think of this or, or, or that. Um, it's not, I'm not, you know, uh, uh, I'm not Lenin spitting out theory all the time, and I'm not, uh, I don't know whoever leftist theory you want theorist you want, to, you want to throw that I'm not Trotsky spitting out theory all the time I'm just a contemporary leftist in 2023 thinking through the problems that our revolutionary forefathers had to confront um, and what that do means you, for us today. Do you condemn Doug Lane? <laughs> uh, what did he didn't do anything? I'm just. He didn't do anything. He's fine. He's sitting in Portland, minding his own business. He didn't do a thing. I condemn every American who makes a joke of about uh, hummus and Hamas. Oof. I'm sick of those jokes. Ooh, they're not funny. I'm sick of them. I condemn all of them. Yes, that's a fair. Con- you know what? Fair condemnation. Yeah. Not funny jokes. Not we funny. will be telling some funny jokes in the champagne room. Toussaint has some things already to go. I have a few things ready to go. Uh, the, wherever you are watching this show or listening to this show, there is a link in the description to Alex's Substack. It's the first thing I put up there, so you can go read the piece, join the Substack. Alex hopefully is coming back to host a show while I'm gone. Nice. Hell yeah, I'm down. I'm asking on air. I, I'm being I, oh, that guy. You know I'm what? Being, I'm, I'm being the kid that asks his parent when the other parents are around to put him on the spot. I'm com- I'm completely down. I was even thinking about having a just audio recording some of my articles on Substack and putting them up there for well, people who don't read. I'll do you one better, and you can host the show while Toussaint and I are trying to figure out what to do with our lives. Yep. I'm being totally serious. Let me know. I'm being serious. I'm letting you right now on air. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Yeah. I'm your daughter right now asking if she can stay at her friend's house and her friend's right there. <laughs> and you don't want to be like, no, I hate those people because they're dirty. But you have to be like, oh, I, mm, you're trying to make every excuse. I'm, I'm doing that right now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're like, you have to do a good fucking job. When, you, when, when you feel like it, just you just let me know. I'll be feeling like it in two weeks. Let's talk then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now that is a dad answer right there. <laughs> Alex Herbert, like you gotta, Gaston said, you got to maneuver your way through, man. Dude. He is a dad. You got to maneuver again, your way through. It is the holiday season. If you want to get your Anglo pessimist fashion before Xmas, Chanukah, what's the other holiday that you people celebrate, Tucson? Ramadan? Kwanzaa. 
Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa. It's Ramadan and Kwanzaa all rolled into one. It's a new holiday. I like, will say, um, along the lines of being a dad, yesterday my daughter made a D's nuts joke. <laughs> She's, eight. She's eight years old. Uh, and and at first I was like, where did you get that from? You know? I mean, I mean, realistically, I don't mind. It's not not the worst thing that she could say. And uh, then I I heard from a friend of mine who teaches young kids, and she was like, no, no, no. There's a weird phenomenon with eight year olds, third graders. They all learn these nuts at some point, <laughs> <laughs> and they all just they all just jump on that joke. And so she was like, so your daughter is like right in line with everyone else. She's getting it from someone. Um, but I they grow so fast. But I, I almost had the conversation with her that night because she kept saying it. I almost had the conversation with her. You know what I mean? I almost had to do the the talk because she was making the joke to me. She was kept saying these nuts. And I was almost like, you know, you know about these nuts, you know, <laughs> you know where you came from? <laughs> she was like, she was like, yeah, from mom's belly. And I was like, yeah. And also these nuts. <laughs> Life lesson 101. And then she kind of blank stared me for a good like 30 seconds, like really confused. And I and in my head I was like, this is it. This is the moment. This is where I have to have the conversation with her. But then she like got distracted and went and did something else. And I was like, all right, I'm off the hook. (laughs) She's just left with this weird question. What did dad mean when he said these nuts? (laughs) You went like this. (laughs) <laughs> exactly <laughs> see you next weekend <laughs> exactly. no my i i believe i i i'm sure i'm positive that within the next month at one point while her mom is putting her to bed she's gonna ask her mom dad said that i came from his nuts what is that mm. yep mm. and i'm gonna get a text that's like what the hell are you saying to my daughter? <laughs> like, hey. And then and then you just play Sukiana. <laughs> Don't blame me. She was the one saying these nuts. <laughs> sexy red. I would just send a sexy red video with the response. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would get ready to go to court. <laughs> so thank you guys. So Tucson, I don't know. That is generic, and I think that is not a real. Shut thing. up. I don't know what that goes to. I thought that was a thing. Okay. I don't. I didn't do a coffee cup, so I don't know what that is. I forgot cool. to tell you that. Cool. It would be cool if it like got all of us coffee, but I think it gets the restream people coffee. Oh, gross. And they owe us so much coffee from losing episodes. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. If you haven't done it already, become a patron. If you're already a patron, get ready. The link is already up uh, in Patreon. Tucson and I will be there shortly. Alex, thank you so much for hanging out with us. We finished this right in time for you. And we are out. These nuts. <laughs>